0: Hi, this is Jerry Conway, and you're listening to Amazing Spider Talk.
1: Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle, all the questions and the webs left out to dangle. Be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. The Amazing Spider Talk. The amazing spider talk. Come swing through the air, sit back and prepare for the amazing spider talk. Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gaveston, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com.
2: And I'm mischievous Marcinacchio, founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die.
1: Well, thanks everyone for joining us for a special episode of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Well,
2: Dan, today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Uh, While we're waiting to interview Jerry Conway for the uh, second episode of season three, uh, we did think it was going to be worthwhile to revisit some of our older interviews with Jerry Conway on the subject of Gwen Stacy's death and the start of the Bronze Age. That's right. Some of these interviews are more than five years old and really showcase how much we've grown as a show and probably as uh, interviewers, too. Right, Dan?
1: (laughs) No doubt. No doubt. (laughs) No doubt.
2: Um, but we didn't want to take for granted that people have listened to all 200-plus episodes of our show, and we didn't want to ask Jerry the same questions over again.
1: So what we'll be doing is providing you some context for each interview before we run our clips with Jerry. Hopefully this will all serve as an excellent way for everyone to catch up before our newest conversation with Jerry in the coming weeks. So whether you've listened to these discussions before or never at all, we're excited to have them all in one place for you. It'll be, it's kind of like a cool topic-based episode.
2: Exactly. So remember, this episode wouldn't be possible without support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show and do all of our research. If you enjoy the show and want to help us continue and get some bonus content, uh, just go over to our show notes and click the link to the Patreon page and check out everything that we have to offer.
1: Awesome. Well, today's episode is made possible by all of our new Patreon subscribers, and we're going to list them off for you guys, starting with Fernando E. Correa.
2: Also, Jason Combs.
1: And the guy who wrote our theme song, Ryland Bojack. Welcome aboard, everybody. Awesome. So, like we said, today's episode is going to feature some of our older interviews with Jerry Conway, but this time cut up, remastered, and focused around the moment that is now said to have kicked off the Bronze Age, the death of Gwen Stacy. We've talked to Jerry a bunch of times over the years, back when we were still superior Spider-Talk, also for the release of the Amazing Spider-Man 2 film, as well as for the conclusion to his spiral storyline, Plus, he recently joined us to talk about his work with John Romita Sr. and even memorialize Stan Lee. There's no guest who's made more of a splash on our show than Jerry. And as we said, we'll be featuring a new interview with him for our Season 3 episode. But today, I've recut a handful of longer interviews together to get all of Jerry's thoughts about his death of Gwen's story in one place. We'll be covering what it was like for him to write Amazing Spider-Man at such a young age, what it was like at Marvel at the time, how he worked with John Romita Sr. and Gil Kane differently, and all of the details about what it meant to kill Gwen Stacy. So basically we hope you enjoy this look back into Amazing Spider-Talk's history.
2: Want to know more about you beyond just the fact that you killed Gwen? Uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: because there is a little more. <laughs>
2: um, now, now you started. You, you started working on Amazing in your early twenties, right?
0: Yeah, I was. Uh, I think I think I was just nineteen uh, wow. twenty. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, what was it like for you at that age to not only. Be, you know, get on amazing, but but you were essentially Stan's replacement. I mean, like, what, yeah, what, I know. what was what, I mean? What, what was going through your head? For, you know, you know, especially at such a young age.
0: Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that I, 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 Marvel was such a small company when I when I started working for them. They they were publishing like ten or ten to fifteen titles a month uh, when I came on, uh, and you really had a very small writing staff. It was uh, I was brought in to back up roy thomas who was backing up stan and so that was it you know and then we had i think gary friedrich and a handful of other freelancers who would you know show up for individual fill-in issues but i guess i was kind of larry lieber you know <laughs> in a sense i was the guy who's, who who would come in and do the stories that stan or roy couldn't do and i i, I was aware that there was this possibility that eventually i would move up the ranks uh i think the first title of stans that he gave up that i I took over was thor i think it was about six months or maybe a year before uh i took over spider-man so i was accustomed to the idea that i might get into that role and i knew that roy really didn't want to write spider-man so that if stan ever did leave that book uh i would be the person who would be likely to take it over and at age 18 19 20 your your sense of uh your own capacity to do things is pretty enormous i mean my self-confidence uh was untempered by reality (laughs) 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 i i think i felt like yeah i could do that you know it was like yeah i could do that uh it was pretty arrogant but you know at, at the same time in a weird sort of way i felt very simpatico with uh peter parker i was the same age theoretically that he was we had a, s- a similar life background although obviously uh i didn't i didn't get bitten by a spider and i didn't live with my sick aunt but <laughs> you know we both we both were kids from queens you know we both had kind of misfit adolescence uh we were both young adult men trying to figure out how to combine relationships and uh career in new york city and it was so, so I, I I kind of felt like I knew that guy, uh, and I really passionately wanted to write him. So when the time came, you know, I, I just took to it like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> and
2: then once you were writing full time, I mean, at, how much input did did Stanley still have on the books? I mean, was he just kind of really in the background by that point, or Stan?
0: Stan really wanted to hand everything off, and and he did. Uh, he didn't really. Oversee the material on a on a day to day basis. Roy had more of an, an impact, and but even Roy had the philosophy that if you were the, if you were the guy that that uh, he wanted to do the work, it's because he liked what you did, and so he wasn't going to second guess you. In the first year or so that I worked on the book, I, I collaborated uh, primarily with John Ramita, who was the senior partner in the in the relationship, obviously. Uh, His name even came first, you know, in the credits uh, for my first uh, dozen issues or half dozen issues, whatever number it was that we worked on together uh, when he was penciling. And he pretty much took me in hand and and taught me how to plot the books uh, the way that uh, Stan would have plotted them, you know, and and guided me and kept me from, you know, too uh, much— too excessive, you know, a, a use of my own ideas. And so, you know, I I, I was gradually uh, given more and more authority and, re- and more and more ability to uh, to pace the stories and develop the stories myself as time went by.
1: There's so much uh, talk by, like, Stan, the way he kind of sells the bullpen and everything, like the Marvel office mm-hmm. in the comics. Like, what was the environment... Like, at the time like there, I mean, like were people actually working in the office, or oh
0: sure yeah, the, although the actual free, the, the people who wrote well let me let me backtrack there was the, the offices were fairly small when i when I first started working for Marvel, uh, I think we had um, three big rooms on Madison Avenue right over right, a floor above the uh, uh the offices of the National Lampoon actually. And they were, we had John Romita and Herb Trimpey were the two artists who worked every day at the office. Uh, both of them uh, drew there. Uh, Trimpey, I think, just preferred to be there because he didn't didn't want. He also had a, a, a part time relationship as a production artist uh, uh, for for Marvel, so that if there were corrections that needed to be made, or you know. Redrawing that needed to be done on a book uh herb was one of the people who would do it so he had to work there uh and then john was there because he was the art director and again you know if if a a cover design had to be done he would be the one to do it so he had to be there but everybody else worked from home uh we all you know wrote uh, our scripts at home i think roy would write at the office uh uh, Stan would sometimes write at the office, but they had kind of semi-private offices. The bullpen itself, you know, was was open, so you didn't have. A, if you were an artist, you might be able to work, but if you were a writer, you might have been too noisy. Although I think a Starbucks today is probably noisier than, than that would have been. A lot of people write their scripts at Starbucks. So, but it was a fairly small operation. You know, when I first started there, it was uh, as I say, ten to fifteen titles, so it was not really much of a bullpen going to say i think
2: i think marvel put out
0: 10 to 15 titles this week (laughs) yeah oh yeah i mean within about three years they were up to 50 titles a month and they didn't change their editorial uh, administrative uh, stance uh, until years later so it was kind of chaotic and crazy they just sort of expanded without ever hiring more staff so it's (laughs) <laughs> it was kind of lunacy.
2: <laughs> now, I, I just wanted to ask, you know, you mentioned John Romita earlier. Now, I mean, and, and if I'm leaving somebody out, I apologize. But in terms of other uh, pencillers you worked on, you know, on your first run on Amazing, were, there was Gil Kane and Ross Andrew, right? Those were the, sure. the two other main ones. I mean, was yes. the was the creative process generally the same with each artist or, I mean, you, you know?
0: Uh... No, not not really. I mean, Ramita was, as I say, more of a Ramita and and Ross Andrew were more direct collaborators. Ramita, in particular, I deferred to Ramita because, as I say, he was the senior senior partner in it, and uh, he obviously knew everything much better than I would have known. Uh, so, when I was working with John, uh, I would run ideas by, by him. He would take them and. and developed the story uh you know visually uh and i had i, I don't think i ever wrote a full full-length platform after the first one that i did with gil kane gil was more was very inventive visually and was a good storyteller but he didn't really didn't really contribute to plot his his uh contributions were in terms of the the overall design, layout, and, and storytelling of the of the of the uh, uh, the issues that we did together, and because he was kind of known for sometimes pacing things a little bit awkwardly, where he would use like say if you gave you gave him a three page plot, he might end up doing the first page over the first sixteen pages of a. 20-page book, and you'd end up with everything crowded into the last four pages, I became very careful with Gil about specifically saying, okay, this is going to take three pages of, of, of pencils, this will take four pages of pencils, and so on. So I was more hands-on with Gil about uh, pacing the stories. With Ross Andrew, it was sort of, um, uh, it was back to working with someone who was really good at plot and story. And Ross and I, I, I consider uh, a really A perfect collaboration, where where the two of us uh, were equal partners in developing the stories together. With the the exception of a handful of stories that I wrote full script, while uh, while he was uh, penciling the book, he was a terrific storyteller and a a great collaborator.
2: And he always had a lot of detail with his Mm -hmm. backgrounds too. I mean, like people, you know, I know a lot of people talk about like how he would always work in like you know these real life buildings and yeah. icons and things yeah. like that i mean did, was that just all him all the way or oh yeah
0: yeah well I, I i got to the point where because i knew that he liked to do that i would specifically say we're going to do this one at this location we, we would talk about locations around the city that that we found visually interesting and that we wanted to use so we would find ways to put the was into the stories. And he actually came to my – I lived up in the west side uh, of Manhattan uh, while we were working together. And he, he would come to my apartment building and take pictures off the roof. <laughs> <laughs> so it, there are some scenes of uh, that, that Spider-Man literally were swinging by my apartment building. So it was uh, very cool. We actually got in trouble once because Ross was so so good about wanting references for, for things. We did a story called Mind Worm. Uh, about a a, a character called the mind worm that's about this kind of mutant kid you know who has this ability to uh do do telepathic mind control or something and uh ross found this house in in his neighborhood down in howard beach uh queens that he thought would be a great house for this guy to be in because it was on this kind of uh, the only house surrounded by vacant lots and it was kind of eerie and weird so he used it as a reference unfortunately it was recognizable, and people started, and fans, local fans, started going to the house and ask if the mind worm lived there. And we ended up, Marvel ended up getting sued by the owners of the house, and they, we had to uh, pay them off, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so from that point on, we were, we're careful to disguise our references.
2: I, I have not heard that story, Dan. Have you heard that one?
1: No, <laughs> I mean, no. All over the mind worm. That's great.
2: I am going to say, I, yeah. I, I mean, I know that issue, but <laughs> I
1: yeah. didn't realize. You can everything. look at it. That house exists. <laughs> really, before <laughs> it did,
0: back in the 1970s. Yeah. Well,
1: Mark, we're going there.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we got to find this house
2: now. Um, Down Howard Beach somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I, say, I, mean, I, have, I have a friend. Well, he used to live in Rockaway, but um, – he actually has since moved to, to Tennessee. He, oh, he went awesome. he went total total south on us. But um, I'll have to ask him if he knew if he knows that story because he, he might. Sure. Um, <laughs> so, in terms of you know kind of backtracking again to um, now going back to to Gwen Stacy related <laughs> material, um, you know, I've I've read you know in certain books or in interviews you know there's there's all these accounts in terms of. You know, when this, this decision was made and, and who, who knew who was on board, whatever. I mean, from from your perspective, when did you know this was going to happen in terms of killing off Gwen?
0: Well, we had been talking about doing something to shake up the book. Uh, and John Ramita was a prime instigator in wanting to to uh, do something dramatic, you know, to, to, to give the book a sense of consequence and, and stakes. Uh, so he felt he he referred to uh, uh, the Milkeniff storytelling techniques of Steve Canyon and uh, Terry and the Pirates, of where you use it, where you, where you do a story where a beloved character, some beloved character, uh, dies, and that raises the stakes, you know, for everybody. You know, it raises raises the stakes for the reader in that the reader. Now knows that yes, in this universe, bad things can happen. You know, and so therefore, I have to pay more attention to those stories. Uh, and for the writers and and artists, it raises a stace because it you know it gets your juices flowing and 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 reminds you that you are doing material that, that uh, has consequence. So he wanted to do do something that would do that. His vote was to kill off Mary, J- uh, not Mary Jane, uh, uh, Aunt May. Uh, he felt that Aunt May, you know, it outlived her usefulness and the time was right for her to, to die. And I, I disagreed with this for a couple of reasons. I mean, my, my, my thought at the time was, uh, and this is less relevant today, but, but at the time, Aunt May was a connection with Peter's reason uh, for being uh, Spider-Man. Uh, she was a, a daily reminder, you know, of that with great power comes great responsibility. She uh, was his connection both to his parents, uh, who had vanished, you know, from his life, and to his uncle, who, uh, you know, is part of his mythic story. So I, f- I felt she still had value as a character. And besides, which I always enjoyed the stories in which you know she's uh, at death's door or uh, involved in some bizarre. Storyline that that puts her in jeopardy. I just like, you know, as a reader, I enjoyed that. But I had a I, I had this long term gripe with the book, which was when I had started reading Spider Man. I, I was a reader reader from like issue two, I think. Uh, and the whole Mary Jane introduction was one of my favorite uh, moments in comic book history. You know, the, the, where where she's you're, you're teased with her for for several months beforehand, where she's you know. Uh, held out you know as this kind of mysterious figure that uh aunt may and her friend uh mrs watson are trying to set peter up with and peter's trying to dodge it desperately you know like oh my god you know i don't want to be a setup with some girl you know that's going to end up being a monster in some way (laughs) and then then the reveal that she was not just cool but but i mean not just beautiful but cool you know i mean she she had that uh, very snappy. Uh, immediately, you could tell she was going to be Peter's equal. You know, I mean, face a tiger. you would hit the jackpot. I mean, that is a self-confident, uh, funny, uh, balls to the wall type woman. And I, and I loved her. And then she went away. Yeah. I mean, she went away as <laughs> Peter's girlfriend. And I was devastated. I was like, what happened here? This is obviously supposed to be his girlfriend. And and suddenly now this other girl is his girlfriend. And I never understood it. But I I understood it from a personal point of view because Stanley – married uh, I mean was and had been married for a long time to a lovely woman named Joan who is a dead ringer for Gwen Stacy <laughs> uh, and his daughter Joan Joni jr. Yes is, is another dead ringer for Gwen Stacy and Stan was basically fulfilling his own own wishes you know that Peter would end up with uh, a woman just like his wife but that did not ring true to me it just did it, there was nothing about Gwen that said to me, this is Peter's inevitable love interest. Uh, I just, I mean, Emma Stone has made her a interesting character. I mean, think about all the things about her that that make her interesting. She's witty. She's sharp. She's uh, gorgeous, but also self-confident. She uh, puts Peter down in a way that's, you know, very direct. And she's Mary Jane. (laughs) She is totally Mary Jane. That is Mary Jane. Of course, if Emma Stone had kept her hair color, you know, and they just stayed stayed with casting her like two movies later. You know, she could be Mary Jane. But (laughs) no, they had to do this. So in effect, I felt like they they had taken a wrong step with with Gwen Stacy. And this was my chance to set it right. So I suggested let's do Gwen Stacy. And believe me, nobody objected. Yeah. Nobody Stan was on board, uh Roy was on board, uh John was like, yeah, that sounds fine. I think it was the manner in which she died and the, you know, the the fatal snap <laughs> that uh people later and with justification probably felt was uh my doing more than they're doing. So they wanted to get, get, get their hands off of it. You know, it's like, you know, for, But although now, you know, everybody would like to probably claim credit for it because it's like, it become so iconic. But at the time, I don't think anybody quite, I mean, certainly Stan didn't know that that's what we, that's how it was done. Roy, I think noticed it, but probably didn't, it didn't track with him, you know, that that's what we were implying. I don't even think that, uh, I consciously even, recognize what it was that i was implying i was responding to what gil had drawn mm. which you know from the angle in which that he had drawn mary jane and the the, the, the motion of her body it was pretty clear that her neck was snapping so i just added the sound effect and the shit storm <laughs> <laughs> down. Did- so did, that's the that's the back
1: Did you um, suspect that that neck snapping would open up this whole other line of questioning over, like, whether she was already dead or not?
0: I wanted to have my cake and eat it, too. You know, so I, I, I put in the whole re- reference, you know, the, the, the goblin saying that, you know, she was pro- she'd be dead on the way down, you know, that that whole thing, which is all nonsense. I mean, unless he had killed her before he threw her off, a fall doesn't kill you. The, the, the landing hit kills you, yeah. you know, that's what killed you <laughs> or your or, or your neck snapping from uh, whiplash kills you uh, you know I, it was a bit of a ambi-pambi moment on my part but it was also kind of traditional in comics uh to try to soften the blow uh and this was this was really a, 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 tr- a transitional story uh, again, not intentionally, none of us were saying to ourselves, we're going to change the business, you know, and make things more real. It was simply, that was the arc that we were on. You know, we were, we were moving towards a more realistic, uh, portrayal of, of uh, comics and, uh, you have these artifacts, you know, that sort of hang around from the prior age and that one of the artifacts was, you know, the, the, the notion that, uh, we could escape blame somehow um, by saying she fell and her she died from the rapidity of her fall. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, kind of jumping off that, um, I, I think it was around um, the time that Amazing Spider-Man 700 had come out, and and Dan Slott was getting death threats about what he did to right. Peter and everything. And you had <laughs> you had made, and I'm paraphrasing, a comment on Twitter, right, where you were like, if I, if 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 Twitter was around when I killed Gwen Stacy, you know, like, the, the, the shitstorm would have oh. been off the charts, right? And, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I guess it's hard to put yourself, but, I mean, if if that story was done today and had the impact it still had, I mean, would you, would, would you, you know, I mean, you're obviously, you're involved in Twitter, you're on social media. I mean, would you be still willing to put yourself out there? <laughs> um, <laughs> well,
0: here's... I did not have any idea back in 73 that I was going to be the recipient of as much hatred as I received. <laughs> in fact, it was so severe. I, I, and this is before, uh, you had social media or any of this. I mean, basically all you had were letters, you know, and, 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 uh, conventions, you know, comic book conventions and the conventions were small. I mean, three to 500 to a thousand, two thousand people. That was, that was a big convention, but I was. I was on the receiving end of a lot of hate mail. I mean, probably more hate mail than uh, I think they'd ever received at <laughs> Marvel up to that point. Uh, and, and a lot of abuse at conventions. I mean, people just, you know, being really uh, obnoxious. And I, I stopped going to conventions and I stopped reading mail. I, I just had to, like, back off of that uh, for a long time. I mean, it was uh, it was just really impossible to... to to put up with it. So I think the big difference between now and, and 73 is that, uh, today our, our readership is more cynical. I mean, one of my other tweets, uh, regarding, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the Den Slot story it w- was simply to say uh, some- something to the effect of, oh my God, you know, they've killed off a major character? <laughs> what, what will happen? You know, will he ever return? You know, like, you know, I mean, nowadays, you know, characters get killed off and they're back a year and a half later. And guess what? Uh, you know, that's pretty much really been the arc of, of Superior Spider Man. I had no doubt in my mind that Peter was going to be back i mean it was just and i don't think anybody who seriously follows comics had any doubt that peter would would not be back but when gwen stacy died we were much less cynical about comics so people took it very very seriously and it was uh and, and in fact she's the only major character i think who's ever been killed off who's never come back with the, you know, if you if you don't count the clone stories, and on it, honestly, I don't. You know, I mean, I count them as stories, but I don't count them as her having come back. So when she st- when she got was made dead, she was stayed dead, <laughs> so, and that's a big difference between what happens now. And I think social media, I to partly, it, it, I I just I'm thunderstruck by readers who are who who take these things as serious disruptions i'm just like flabbergasted that anybody thought for a minute that peter parker is gone forever <laughs> how could anybody be that naive you know um yet that's what we see you know and 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 i mean remember the big media brouhaha when superman was killed oh yes. Yeah. yeah right <laughs> superman's dead uh, Captain America. Oh my God, he's dead. You know. Ke- oh my God, they killed Kenny. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know?
1: what are your feelings like? You know, as someone who kind of like killed the, you know, quintessential like you know superhero girlfriend and, and kind of changed the attitude towards that, like about how that stuff is being handled today and like maybe how it's being like read differently. I mean, do you do you have feelings on that?
0: Well, it, it's it, it is fascinating. I'm I'm I, I I've always. Kind of considered myself a feminist, but but I realized in recent years that my perception of, of women's role uh, is filtered through you know a kind of a, 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 a well I mean a very obviously filtered through a, a male perspective, and I have huge blinders you know that that I that I'm trying to remove <laughs> you know uh, w- which are just automatic kind of, well, yeah, that's the way things are, you know, sort of, sort of uh, assumptions. So yes, I think it's, I think it's unfortunate that women are still, and and supporting characters in general, but women as supporting characters are generally treated as uh, potential victims, you know, rather than as assertive individuals in their own right. I mean, to some degree, inevitably, if you're doing a male-centric character i mean if your male lead is a, is a character and he has relationships unless the relationship was a, is with another guy there's going to be a certain sexual component to it that's 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 going to be there you know what i mean there's, he's going to have a girlfriend sure. or he's going to have a wife or he's going to have a, 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 a and inevitably because the story is actually about the lead character the secondary character is going to be secondary uh, by definition, you know she's the secondary <laughs> character, and so as a result, you have to really work your work at it to not treat her as an appendage. Uh, you you have to like give her a, uh, and, and I think we, I've, we we've to varying degrees. I as a writer have, have been a failure at this or a success at this. You know, I mean at different times in my career, but there is a tendency. To just automatically put her in the fridge or throw off a building or, you know, uh, put a tire to the railroad tracks. You know, I mean, something that puts her in a victimized position so that the hero has has some some uh, reason for doing, you know, for 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 rushing to to, to her rescue. And I think it's unfortunate, you know, but it's also kind of integral to the drama of. Any story where you have a lead character and a supporting character, the supporting character is going to end up needing to be in a subordinate role. That being said, I think that it's a, it's incumbent upon writers and artists to not treat that subordinate role as automatically a, as a weaker character or as a less uh, developed character and to not take the easy out of, of putting them in jeopardy just because that makes for a greater, you know, a, a stronger suspense for the lead character. There, there has to be other, you know, there, there has to be a way to sort of tr- treat them as equals, you know, is what I would say. <laughs> uh, but recognizing that they ultimately, they're not equals because one, one is the protagonist and one is not, you know, in a, in a book that's featuring that's, that's built around a female character, then, she should be the, the the main character and subordinate character will be whoever she's in a relationship with, you know, and, and that person will be in jeopardy, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and in Batwoman, it'll be another woman, you know, right. and in, and in uh, Batgirl, it might be a guy. I mean, you know, it, it could be any number of things, uh, but we have to be conscious of not taking the easy out is what I'm saying.
2: Uh, Jerry, just um, just out of curiosity, I mean, why why was Green Goblin chosen as the guy to to do this? I mean, you know, fans will debate back and forth about you know who is the. The arch villain for Spidey, and you know, obviously, you, you know, you read Superior right now, and it would seem that Doc Ock is kind of the guy, <laughs> since he since well, he successfully got into his skin. <laughs> but I mean, what, why? What? I mean, did you know from the get go if you were going to do this story, like it had to be Green Goblin?
0: Well, it's interesting because, in my view, Green Goblin. I mean, while I, while Art, while Doc Ock and uh, Sandman and Vulture, you know, were all important members of the, the Spider-Man Rose gallery. Green Goblin, for some reason, always, I guess because, as I say, I read those books from the beginning, and I was fascinated by the, by the Goblin uh, storyline uh, when it was originally played out, where, you know, you had this mysterious figure, I mean, this, this villain who shows up with, who doesn't seem to have a secret identity. We don't know what a secret identity is. Uh, but there's implications that he's vitally important in Peter's life. Uh, that there's a personal connection. And, of course, all of that is retro-con, you know, yeah. because uh, I, I I guarantee Stan and Steve, when they created him, didn't have Harry Osborne in mind and, and didn't have Norman Osborne in mind. In fact, they weren't even introduced uh, until after the Goblin came along. But be that as it may, Peter had a personal relationship with Norman Osborn that he didn't have with any of the other villains in his life. So... In my mind, the Green Goblin was always Peter's arch enemy, and if you're going to have you know this, this fatal consequence, you know where uh, his arch enemy, his Joker, basically uh, kills his girlfriend and then is himself killed, uh, you want it to be a, a, a character of consequence to him emotionally, in addition to just being uh, you know the big bad. You know he's he's got to have some emotional connection. And it it also – it was in my mind that uh, Harry would make a terrific uh, replacement goblin Uh, and that, you know, you could – I could have my cake and eat it too. I could have a goblin die and I could bring the goblin back and it would make perfect sense structurally and and emotionally. So it seemed like, you know, it it seemed like an inevitability to me at the time.
2: Yeah, so, so you had Harry in mind. Early yeah. on, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I have a question. It's something that's kind of always bothered me. And, uh, Mark and I were reviewing the new ways to die, uh, storyline last week on the show. And, um, it brought up this back up in my in my head in the, in the book it says that they're uh, at the uh, GW bridge but it's clearly <laughs> the Brooklyn Bridge. What is the what is the story behind what this confusion? What the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is that? What
0: is that? Well, what it, what that was was that in my outline I refer to it as uh, the GW bridge and when he drew it. Gil Kane drew the Brooklyn Bridge, I believe, or it could be reversed. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's like it's been so long. And when I wrote the script, I was looking at my outline and I was really not paying that close attention because I was so involved with the emotions of the scene. You know, I wasn't paying that much attention to the place. Uh, so I just referred to it as the, the the George Washington Bridge or whatever, you know, whichever one it is, because I'm still confused. to this yeah, day. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> right, so so right. it's. It's like uh, I I needed, you know, I just sort of, I I guess I just wasn't paying close enough attention. And it was a a confusion that sort of arrived between the two of us. And I think, honestly, that obviously the Brooklyn Bridge is visually a much better choice. So Gil made the better choice. I had wanted the George Washington Bridge just simply because I hadn't seen that part of Manhattan in, in a comic, you know, and I guess I was going for the anti iconic approach. So, <laughs> we, but it's one of those things where you could sort of say, see, this is the secret history, you know, and there's a conspiracy, you know, but maybe this didn't actually happen. Maybe it's all a dream.
1: <laughs> it's uh, it's no prize worthy.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely no prize worthy. And yours is in the mail. <laughs> yes,
1: I've always wanted one.
0: <laughs> well now you won't have one. So <laughs> I always love no prizes. I actually got one once. Did you? you know, really? They actually Yeah, they sent out you know, they sent out these little envelopes with no prize in them. You know, it's like you'd get this you'd get this uh envelope from Marvel and it had, you know, the the drawing of the Hulk on it, I think it was, and uh, a big announcement, here's here's your no prize and you open it up and there's nothing in it. <laughs> we obviously
2: touched on Mary Jane earlier, but you know, the, the, the scene and it's one of my favorite scenes with the character and might even be my favorite scene in in Spider Man one twenty two, the that that epilogue with yeah. Mary Jane coming. So I mean, I guess the first question is, I mean, was was there any bit of you know caution in terms of Hypothetically, setting Peter in this, in the you know, in the same setting as as a prior romantic interest, and you know, in the same storyline where his current girlfriend died. I mean, was that did you have any caution? But I mean, was that also like your your clear signal that this is the direction
0: that you wanted the character to go romantically? Well, I wanted I I, I wanted to accomplish a couple of things. I mean, uh, and we actually that 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 sequence was redrawn because the way that, uh, that Gil had done it, uh, wasn't, didn't provide the same sort of closure that I think it it provides now. So John Romita redrew the last two or three panels. I, I I didn't want us to leave this storyline with no hope for Peter, you know, that, 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 he was obviously, uh, devastated and destroyed emotionally. And so were the readers, you know, going to be devastated and destroyed emotionally by this story, but I didn't want to leave it at that, you know, where there is no sense that, um uh, uh, life will not go on in some way. But I also didn't want it to feel like, he's going to pick things up and everything is going to be happy and he's going to be right back into a relationship with another girl. I wanted it to feel like she's his friend first here, you know, that, that he needs somebody who's going to be able to accept his pain at this moment. You know, a someone who's going to be able to hear him and not walk away from him while he's at, at this lowest point of his life. And that's what that, was, I was trying to communicate with that. But also at the same time, you know, give us a sense that, you know, that she's available to him as a potential, you know, future romantic interest. Uh, but, but without crossing that line, you know, I mean, it was a very, very delicate line to sort of <laughs> to be on. And so there's no sense that they're going to kiss and embrace and all of that. You know, it's, it's uh, she's going to be there for him. Uh, you know, while he's, uh, in his, in his pain. Uh, and I think that was really all, that's why the door closes, you know, on the two of them. Uh, so they can have that private, private space.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's just, to me, that's always just a
0: scene where she, she totally evolves into a, yeah, she old, grows up. Yeah. She grows up and that, in that pa- on that two pages. That's where she makes her choice of who she's going to be. So I, I was really happy with that too. <laughs> and
2: we, we we spoke to uh, Jam uh months ago, and we were asking him about his uh, Spider-Man, Harry Osborn, you know, Child Within, and then the death of Harry story. And you know, he he credited what what you and Ross did on on your issues with Harry as kind of like laying the foundation for this, you know, really kind of emotional and psychological dynamic between the two characters i mean what what, what, i mean what what were you going for when when you made harry the goblin i mean just beyond the shock value of it i mean what what were you thinking about in terms of trying to pit two best friends against each other well Relationships
0: are complicated.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Happens uh, all the time. <laughs>
0: yeah. I, well, I, I've, I've had roommates, you know, and <laughs> actually Len Wein, Len Wein and I were roommates at one point. So I, I think there's this kind of a love-hate relationship that you have with your best friends. You know, I mean, that these are people who are very close to you, but they're also, in a sense, very threatening because they know you. You know, they know how to hurt you in ways that uh, uh somebody else doesn't know so a best friend is somebody that you that you that you value both because they're there for you and because they don't use what they know against you, <laughs> you know? So it's like uh it's a complicated thing and i i, I guess on some level i wanted to, to use that as a metaphor, you know, it's uh, in the background for, for Peter and Harry's uh, relationship. Plus there was this, this, I always felt there was this kind of dynamic between them uh, of this kind of unequal relationship, w- friendship, where there had to be a kind of um, uh, jealousy that each of them felt for the other, you know, because on the one hand, you know, Peter does end up with Mary Jane, who was originally... Uh, was gwen originally with i mean it's like they went back and forth they did the betty and veronica thing back and forth with those with those women uh so there was a certain you know potential uh jealousy in that regard but there was also this kind of jealousy in that harry comes from money harry comes from wealth peter doesn't so in a way both of them envy the other you know that that peter obviously could envy harry for for his wealth uh and his social class and you know the ease of his life you know financially but harry also envies peter for peter's freedom from responsibility ironically you know a family responsibility of of having to live up to the father's expectations you know uh so there's a kind of an interesting dynamic there and i just liked the idea of uh you know my 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 best friend my 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 worst enemy you know this as a, as a dynamic especially since harry you know would have this kind of psychotic break where i could go back and forth you know i <laughs> could be his friend and not his friend friend and not his friend you know back and forth <laughs> so that was kind of fun i just i just found it as a as a potentially a potential gold mine for 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 stories and there's this other aspect too that that uh villains in my mind are always at their best when they have complicated emotional uh history uh where you can feel some empathy and sympathy for them and, and certainly i think you feel that for harry
2: you you obviously have a, a real good sense of humor about what what you've written i mean do you when 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 people do talk about you know you know, the death of one and that, that whole era of books being like, you know, the end of the silver age, the end of innocence. Do you, I mean, do you feel at this point, do you embrace it? Do you, do you deflect it? Can you wrap your head around it or, or what's, what's.
0: I absolutely, I absolutely embrace it. I mean, one of the, one of the, I feel really privileged. First of all, that I that I was part of a, a terrific era in comics. Uh, you know, the silver age and the transition into the bronze age. You know, I can't I can't express how you know lucky I I feel for for that. And you know, if I had planned it. I could take some some pride and credit, you know, in making that transition from the silver age to the Bronze Age, I mean, you know, the growing up of comics or whatever. But that was something that was that was recognized well after the fact. And to me, it's, it's a wonderful irony, because on a personal level, it was very painful at the time. I got a lot of hate, as I said. Uh, I, I, I used to joke, you know, that I was the most hated man in comics. And for a while I was kind of, you know, seriously hated by people. Um, but now, you know, as you say, you know, I'm sort of this legendary figure. And it's kind of funny <laughs> to me that that the that stuff, stuff that I was uh, beaten up for in the past, you know, becomes material that's considered, if not... Uh, If not because of the quality of the writing, because I can't say that the quality of the writing is any better than or worse than anybody else's, but for the historical significance that it had is kind of remembered. That's kind of cool, you know. And that that to me is uh, it's a great privilege, you know. And and I'm I'm really happy uh, to have that in my resume, (laughs) as it were. You know, when I when I write up my bios for conventions, you know, that I always put down, you know, the man who killed Gwen Stacy. because in fact, if I ever write a memoir, I'll probably call that that my memoir, just because that's the thing that I did. You know that that, for whatever for for good or ill, was a defining moment of my comic kind of career, at least at that stage of my my uh, uh, my life. So, you know, I peaked early. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> it's all been downhill for the last forty years. You know. But, but what a peak. <laughs> well, it was a, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's cool to look back at it and to recognize it for what it was, but I guarantee none of us thought that's what we were doing. And we were just trying to tell a good story and keep the readers interested and uh, do the kind of thing that, that seemed like the right thing to do at the time. It seemed like a good idea at the time, and it turned out we were right. So... <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thanks again for joining us for our Jerry Conway interview roundup episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. So, Dan, what's coming down the pike for us in the future?
1: Well, like we said, we've got episode two uh, coming our way uh, of our season three, which is going to be our new interview with Jerry Conway. So if you haven't gotten enough Jerry Conway recently on our show, we're going to have even more Jerry Conway. So, I mean, I think he's always a great guest, so I'm excited for that. Even if he's, like our most frequent guests on the show
2: it's it's a good problem to have Dan because you can never get enough <laughs>
1: Jerry <laughs> it's a problem I never foresaw myself having
2: exactly um, also for our Patreon subscribers be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week where we've already got special reviews of the entire Nexpenser run up through issue uh, 13 and a roundup review of all of the uh, B-title books that recently came out uh, why wait to get caught up in a few months remember for just $3.99 a month the price of a new comic You'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, B-Book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork, uh, this time from Barry Kitson.
1: Also check out the Untold Talks of Spider-Man podcast, our sister show, as they talk about Spider-Man graphic novels. And this time they're talking about Spirits of the Earth, you know, that uh, Charlie Vess uh, book.
2: My goodness, I don't even know that book, Dan.
1: It's pretty cool looking. Um, also, we've got the amazing Spider Slack community for you to join. Just check this episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community. Mark, if people wanted to talk with you, where would they do so?
2: Well, I don't know why you'd want to talk with me, but if you have wanted to, you can find me, of course, on Twitter at ChasingASMblog, or you can always get my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. It's, it's almost two years old at this point, but... Those hundred things are still out there, and they demand you read them. <laughs> it's,
1: pretty, it's pretty evergreen.
2: Yeah, pretty much. Dan, what about you?
1: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well, at at SupSpiderTalk, and um, over at the Hollywood Reporter's Heat Vision blog, where I just put up a piece on all of the Easter eggs in the Spider-Man Far From Home trailer, and there's more of them than you'd think. I feel like Sony is just out to quiz me on what I can find in these things. Like they literally emailed me and were like, here's the new trailer. Curious to see what you find. And I'm like, you're doing this just for me, Sony. You're an audience of one for them, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> uh So uh speaking of trivia, Mark, there is something that is, formulative to our show and to the world of Spider-Man. And, uh, you know, if you don't know it, boy, you're in for a surprise. Mark, what is the motto that formulates all of this?
2: Absolutely. That motto is, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. Don't, don't
1: miss the next